Here at Kajabi, we are known for one thing, helping everyday people like you build successful businesses online. With our simple all-in-one platform, we've paved the way for over 100,000 people to create 300,000 products and collectively earn over $3.9 billion in revenue. And we've created the Online Business Edge podcast to inspire, educate, and empower you to do the same. So unlike other podcasts that highlight the glory stories of today's most successful entrepreneurs, we're bringing you the real stories from real people who have created real success to give you the online business edge you need to succeed in today's digital marketplace. So if you're someone who's looking to start an online business, allow us to be the first to welcome you home to the Kajabi family. everyone, and welcome to the Online Business Edge podcast, where we talk to real entrepreneurs to give you the online business edge you need to succeed on Kajabi. I'm your host, Jared Lohman, Vice President of Customer Experience. And today, I'm joined by my friend, Ali Abdal. How is it going today, Ali? Mate, this is so good. I've just come off the back of my keynote, feeling the high. I love the energy in the room. Yes. so fun. This is perfect timing. We are here at Kajabi Hero Live. Uh, for all of you listeners who are listening to the recording of this, you may hear some background noise, some lively warmth. Uh, that is unusual for a podcast, but uh, it is increasingly like for podcasters. I assume do you podcast as well. Like for podcasters, this is actually really nice because I'm used to sitting in a room all by myself, and we actually have a crowd today. So nice change. But let's just get the ball rolling. For anyone here who's listening to the recording, everyone here knows who you are. But give us just your quick elevator pitch on who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, so my name is Ali. I'm a doctor turned entrepreneur. So uh, while I went through med school, I decided to start a YouTube channel. Worked as a doctor for two years. YouTube channel grew to million subscribers in that time, started selling online courses, and then I made loads of money. And I was like, oh, wow, this living the creator entrepreneur life is way more fun than actually being a practicing physician. And so I left medicine for good about two years ago, uh, switched over to Kajabi for all of our course stuff. And now I live this pretty insane life where I just get to learn about interesting things, share them online, sell some courses and get to travel out to places like this. I love it. I love it. Well, take us through uh, that journey in a little bit more detail now. I'd love to start with... Uh, I Maybe I make an assumption here, but I assume the medical profession pays reasonably well. So like to offset that income, I imagine, it might take a little while to get there. So can you take us through... like What did it take to actually build something that was even remotely financially sustainable? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, in the UK, the medical profession does not pay very well at all. So my salary while I was working as a doctor was about 40 Okay, $40,000 ish. And if I'd worked for another 10 years and become fully qualified as a consultant, it would have been about 100, 120. So here in the US, people like doctors earn way more money than, than, than back in the UK. But to be honest, it wasn't really about, about the money for me. Um, I, I, I was doing YouTube for three years before leaving medicine. In those three years, I would get home from work in the evenings and the weekends, and I would use that time to film and edit. And for the first two years, I was doing everything by myself. I didn't know anything about delegation or outsourcing. I wish I'd known that a lot sooner. And so Basically, all my time in weekends and evenings uh, was spent editing videos, trying to get videos up on the YouTube channel. And in those three years, just plugging away at it, I think it was 52 videos in six months to get the first 1,000 subscribers. Um, and then another 50 videos to get to 10,000, and then another 50 to get to 100. And then, you know, the exponential growth started from there to the point that I think well, at the time I left medicine, three years in, the channel was just about approaching a million subscribers and was doing about like 500, 600K in revenue. So that, was, that would have been like 15 years worth of work as a doctor. So at that yeah. point, like it just made perfect sense. And even then, I was still really scared. So I just took a one-year break from medicine. I intended to travel the world. I intended to go to Australia. But then the pandemic struck. That was 2020. And so I sort of accidentally 
ended up becoming a full-time YouTuber. And that was when I had time on my hands away from the day job. So that was when I started making courses. And that was when the business really took off because now we had a product to sell. Amazing. Amazing. Well, uh, tell us a little bit more again, like for any of the, especially the listeners who are listening to the recording of this, how did you figure out where to start? I guess the focusing on the content of your video, did you, did you, I would immediately think I'm going to talk about me- my medical profession. Like, how did you figure out like where to, where to find your niche? Absolutely. So um, the reason I started my YouTube channel was actually as an organic content marketing driver for a business that I had. So I'd actually been uh, running a business in medical school, helping people get into med school. I realized at the time that I wanted to make money, obviously. Um, I knew how to teach and I did pretty well in the med school entrance exams. So I thought, why don't I combine those things? You know, nowadays it's called the expert economy or something. I didn't know any of this terminology at the time. But I thought, hey, if I can teach what I know to students who want to know the thing, I can charge them maybe $70 for it. And so I would run these in-person courses up and down, you know, rooms around the UK. We'd book a room in a hotel, pay $300 for it. I really hope at least five people sign up because now we're breaking even. We would print out booklets for them, get them FedEx to the hotel. So much like logistical nightmare to get 30 people in a classroom and for me to teach them how to do well in these exams. And so I was running this business for five years. And then when I started the YouTube channel, the intention was that, hey, I can teach the same stuff on YouTube. And maybe some people will buy my course. And I now know that this is now called organic content marketing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when you started the YouTube channel, was your intention to actually monetize YouTube itself? Or did you always plan to eventually monetize off platform? Yeah, the plan from day one was it was always to monetize off of uh, of the platform. I never thought I would get more than like, I I thought, you know, I knew someone who had 4,000 subscribers. I was like, man, if I can get 4,000 subscribers, that would be utterly insane. Um, I didn't really know that you could make loads of money off of YouTube itself. And so for me, YouTube was always a case of trying to build a business around it because I'd been doing business for a long enough at that point, five years of running courses to know that actually making money by selling your own product is actually just a more sustainable, streamlined way of building a business. Whereas I knew some people like as as I ascended the ranks of YouTube, who continue to rely on AdSense and brand deals. And that's really stressful. Like I've got a friend who has to hit a million views with every video, otherwise the sponsor's unhappy. And otherwise his AdSense income goes down and he can't support himself. Because it's like you you create this sort of hamster wheel of stress and pain for yourself when you're tied to specific view counts. But being able to build a business off-platform, especially being able to sell uh, things like courses or workshops or whatever, where you teach something, you teach the thing on the YouTube channel and the next level down, you teach as an online course. And everyone I know who teaches courses loves their life and is like a millionaire. And everyone I know who doesn't teach courses is struggling to monetize. Yes. Uh, Can we take just a moment for anyone, again, listening to the recording who didn't get to hear your session that you just gave? I'd I'd love to just hone in on a few of your tips, tricks, and strategies for starting that process of building an audience online, in particular, perhaps on YouTube. Absolutely. Um, So I think think there's a handful of needle movers. The main, I mean, the one that's complete table stakes is just consistency. Um, people often ask me, you know, what's the thing that separates the kind of successful YouTubers from the less successful ones? And now I've been running a, a course, the Part-Time YouTuber Academy, hosted on Kajabi. Uh, we teach people how to grow YouTube channels. And in that time, we've had about 3,000 students. Uh, maybe like, yeah, in the, in the last few years, about 3,000. Of those, I think maybe 1% will succeed. What succeed on YouTube, like really make it big, about 30 people. And if we look at what separates 30, the, the 30 from everyone else, a big factor is consistency. Even though our course is high ticket, people, people just you know, don't take action. They'll go through the course, they'll go through the six weeks, they'll submit their videos, and then they will not upload anything ever again. And those people are the ones that are, you know, either life gets in the way, which is fair enough, or they decide that YouTube's not for them. 
or they decide that oh, I'm not seeing the traction in video number six. And I have to remind them, guys, I've got 4.3 million subscribers, but it took me 52 videos to get my first 1,000. So until you've made 52 videos, you know, calm down and shut up and just keep on keep on going with it. So I think consistency is by far the most important thing. I think another one that, that really works nicely for educational creators is really trying to leverage a pre-existing unfair advantage that you have. So for me, when I first started making YouTube videos, I thought I was going to be a musician. I was like, I want to be the next Chris Schneider. I want to play the guitar. I've got friends who want to sing well, and we can make maybe we can make music videos. But I had zero unfair advantages in the music genre. And it was only when I started making videos about medical stuff where I had an advantage that suddenly things started to work because I had something to share. So I think leaning into some sort of unfair advantage is also super, super helpful. And then once people have figured that, figured that piece out, the consistency and figuring out what advantage they want to lean into, I think the other key solution is to try and approach it like a business. I think a lot of people approach growing a YouTube channel or growing organic content in any way kind of like a creative art. It's like, you know, uh, I really like making coffee. Therefore, I'm going to start a coffee shop. And it's like that that logic kind of breaks down because enjoying coffee is very different to then trying to create a business out of it, where to create a business, you have to provide value to a market that wants to pay for that value. And on YouTube, people are not paying for it with their dollars, but they're paying for it with their time and attention. And so applying the principles of business the books that I read, the you know the courses that, that I took around growing business as as the team was growing and as my first business was growing, I applied all of those lessons to the YouTube channel, the strategy and competitor analysis, and really figuring out how you're going to stand out in a crowded market, and then systems and operations and SOPs, and it's really boring stuff on the surface, but it's the stuff that makes a YouTube channel sustainable and that makes it an effective business proposition rather than just a creative outlet. Well, you started with uh, the topic of consistency, and I'm pretty convinced after listening to almost a hundred guests on this podcast, that that's one of the two factors. The first factor in terms of achieving success in this space is one, you've got to start and take that first step. You're not doing anything unless you start the process. But that second one is actually consistency or what I often talk about is persistence. I- I'm interested in your perspective on, is there a mathematical formula for consistency as it relates to YouTube? Because I noticed you said 52 and I'm guessing that may have meant one video a week. Yeah, so 52 was two videos a week for six months. Uh, the thing, oh. the thing I say to people these days is one video a week is the sweet spot. If you can just do one video a week every week for two years, then I fully guarantee it will completely change your life. I can't put any numbers on it. I can't tell you how much money you're going to make, but I can 100% guarantee it will change your life. You're going to learn skills. You're going to meet incredible people. You'll learn more about yourself. You'll become more confident and you might even make some money or realize that, Oh my God, I've got a business on my hands. But what it needs is one video every week for two years. And that's what consistency means in my book. Take us through how that that principle has carried forward as you became more successful. I can't imagine that consistency falls off the radar. You are obviously very busy. You're still showing up at events like this. How does consistency help you at the stage that you're in today? Yeah, even now. like I mean, consistency, weirdly, is more of a struggle now than it was before. Before, I would come home from work. And the only thing I have competing for my time and attention was like, occasionally hanging out hanging out with friends and like having dinner with my housemate. And so actually staying consistent on YouTube wasn't that hard. It was just a case of kind of figuring out how to make videos when it was around my like night shifts and weekend shifts and trying to find time here and there. But that was pretty reasonable. These days, the thing that makes consistency harder is, you know, this is very much a first world problem, but coming to places like this where I get flown out to really cool places with my team and hanging out with the team and actually leading and managing a team, working on a book as well for the last few years, it's in the final weeks of editing. There's all these competing demands on my time. And so it's kind of weird that when I was working full-time as a doctor, I actually had more time to do YouTube than now where there's all this other stuff going on that's super fun that I really want to do, but it does take time away from the YouTube channel. And so we keep on trying to find systems around this. Uh, you know, we've got team members now who help with different aspects of the process. I don't particularly enjoy making titles and thumbnails myself. So one of our team 
members is full-time job is basically just coming up with loads of titles and thumbnails. Um, we try doing batch filming. All of the editing is outsourced. But even then, this is like surprisingly hard to stay consistent uh, with content creation. So it's definitely a problem that I can relate to um, and definitely a struggle for everyone on every step, step of the journey. But fundamentally, what it comes down to is that our entire business is downstream of lead generation, as every business is. And organic content is such an unfair advantage of being able to generate leads for a business that the consistent rhythm of publishing video every single week just completely, yeah, completely blows up the business. Thinking back on the first course that you put together, what were some of the challenges that you encountered being a YouTube platform, not a streamer, but a YouTube, primarily focusing on YouTube platform? What changed when you started the course creation process and what are some of the unique challenges? Yeah, so the thing is, I think for me, creating courses was always fairly simple because I already had a background in teaching and I already knew how to break things down. And so my very first course was a course on how to edit videos in Final Cut. You know, I'd been editing videos for two years at that point. I knew I wanted to outsource it. So I thought, you know what, let me make an online course on how to, how I edit videos in Final Cut. And I just sort of one day sat down and wrote down a list of lessons. Lesson one, importing files. Lesson two, a tour of Final Cut. Lesson three, the A cut. Lesson four, the philosophy of the A cut. Lesson five, adding music. Lesson six, adding B-roll. It's just like, what are all of the steps of the process? It turned out to be 34 steps. So I thought, you know what, the next time I edit a video, I'm just going to record my screen and speak to a camera and just document what I'm doing as I'm going along. Each lesson maybe had three bullet points of prep, and that was it. It took me a day to film, and I gave it to a freelance editor to give him two days to edit. And that course, it was on Skillshare, um, although I wouldn't recommend Skillshare anymore for various reasons, but it was on Skillshare, and that course was making $5,000 a month since September of 2019 without me having to do any kind of marketing for it. I would just occasionally mention it in my YouTube video description. And that just completely blew my mind, right? Because I was earning $3,000 a month working 60 hours a week as a doctor, and I just made a freaking online course on how to use Final Cut Pro. It took me a day, and it's making $5,000 a month for the last three years. That is just absolutely insane. And I think when it comes to course creation, people overcomplicate it. It's actually fairly simple. You just got to break the thing down into the steps that you're actually doing and then just explain to people how you do the steps. And I think people overthink and think, oh, I need all this theory. I need all this stuff. But fundamentally, people want to learn a skill. And if you know how to do the skill, you can break down how you're doing the skill. Speaking of overcomplication, I've talked to people who have spent three years creating a course, and I've talked to people who have sold their course prior to even creating it. What are some of your philosophies on how you decide content length and when you bring that content to market? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, increasingly I've become more of the sell the course before you create it. I think in the past, I would, I would even, even though I was fairly chill about creating courses, it would be quite a heavy lift. And I'd be like, okay, I think I think I want to make a course about X. Cool. Let me map out the course. Let me do some bullet points. Let me film the course. Filming a course takes a whole day, sometimes two days. And then one of our editors would, would edit it. And that was like sort of a three-day heavy lift to get a course out. Now what we do when it comes to our courses is we think, you know, the offer, the offer comes first. If we can sell the offer, we can always worry about the fulfillment later. And so what we try and do is firstly, we try and get validation from the market. So we put out a tweet or something saying, hey, you know, have you ever thought about hiring a personal assistant? In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll make a course about the life-changing magic of an assistant and how to work with one of those. And then we'll see what the responses are. And then we'll send out an email to our list being like, hey, have you thought about hiring an assistant? Can you fill out this little form if you have? And we ask them questions. And then once we get people's kind of issues with it, people might say that, oh, it's too expensive. It's only for rich people. It's only if you're an absolute asshole that you have an assistant. I don't know how to hire. I don't know. I don't know how to work with them. I don't know if I should like give them my email details. I feel weird about giving them my bank details. Like there's all these problems that people will have. And then what we'll do is we'll craft an offer out of those problems. Like in this course, we're going to teach you ABC. We'll give you templates and checklists for ABC. Would you like to potentially buy it? 50% discount, pre-order discount, like pre-order the course. It'll be ready in a few months. And then we see how it does. And that kind of model of approaching course creation is where where we're now moving towards. Because there's a lot of effort to create something that there might not necessarily be a market for. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about how you found Kajabi. I 
I kind of know the story, but I'd love for you to share like how Kajabi ultimately became the course creation platform of your choice. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 2017, I started off in Podia when I was selling my medical courses, little online courses, because I was like, I don't want to teach physical courses anymore. Let me do the, the medical thing. And I think I was following the Podia founder on Twitter or something. Well, it seems, seems interesting. Uh, it's like vibe nicely, but easy, easy enough to make a website. So I was selling courses on Podia since 2017. Um, and then we kind of switched to Teachable a bit for our YouTuber course. Then we switched to SamCard. Then we switched to Shopify. Then we did some weird combination of Shopify plus Samcart plus um, Vimeo Pro plus Circle and like trying to duct tape everything together. And then about six months ago, so at the end of 2022, I decided to read Dotcom Secrets by Russell Brunson. And that book completely blew my mind just straight to, you know, a different galaxy. And I was like, oh, okay, this is how you sell something online. Man, I wish I discovered this 10 years ago. Um, and that book talked about funnels. I'd never really heard of a funnel. I'd you know, vaguely come across like click funnels before. Um, and I was like, okay, cool. We need funnels for our courses business. And I looked at Podio, can make a funnel. Teachable can make a funnel and look pretty trash. WordPress, got to make it manually. Webflow, got to make it manually. And the, really, there were only two platforms that could actually create funnels. There was Kajabi and there was ClickFunnels. And so we tried both of them out. ClickFunnels, vibe wasn't great. They just released ClickFunnels 2.0. It's like quite buggy. Um, and then around the time, I discovered Brendan Burchard's podcast, Marketing with Brendan. And I listened to it. And in every episode, he would plug Kajabi. And I was like, huh, this guy's really legit. I've read his book and he really knows his stuff. He's not just a corporate shill. So let me try out Kajabi. So we tried it out. And then I saw he was randomly following me on Twitter. So I just DM'd him being like, hey, Brendan, you know, you're sponsored by Kajabi. You talk about them quite a lot. Like, would you actually recommend it? And he was like, oh my God, recommend it without reservation. He emailed inferred me to Ahad, your CEO, book on Zoom to Ahad. And he was like, yeah, Kajabi's sick. We'd love to have you. I was like, wow, it's nice that real people that I met are actually using this thing. And so we switched over to Kajabi now and we haven't looked back. Amazing. Well, uh, just for anyone who's listening on the, this uh, episode on the recording, I would love to share or for you to share, like, what has been the biggest motivator or change for you in terms terms of your decision to become an entrepreneur, to leave the world of medical, like what is the motivator now? Fundamentally, I think the motivator is freedom, um, autonomy, independence, being able to do what I want on my own terms. And I would say this to my mom and she would say, oh, you know, you've got to grow up sometimes. Like, you know, working is about not, you know, is, you know, working is about doing things that you don't like. And I actually think in the world today, that's, that's just not true. Um, I used to ask people a lot, like when I was in medicine, I used to ask two questions. I used to ask, firstly, if you won the lottery, would you continue to do medicine? And half the people would say they would leave immediately. Uh, one guy even said he would leave in the middle of the operation. Um, and the other half of the people would say they'd go part-time, but they needed money and they couldn't afford to go part-time. And then the other question I would ask people and in any kind of job is, do you look forward to Mondays? And basically, everyone would be like, well, no, not really. No one looks forward to Mondays. But you know, once I'm at work, then it's, it's, it's all right. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. And I, I, so, so I used to think, okay, cool. You know, looking forward to, Monday, to Mondays isn't really a thing. But then I started doing this entrepreneur stuff and I was genuinely look forward to Mondays. And even to this day, I wake up on a Monday morning and I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to get out of the shower and like do my skincare and like get like stuck in with the team because we were like working on a video. And it just feels so exciting and energizing. And so I look forward to Mondays and then I can also take a break whenever I want. I can like go for coffee or a gym in the middle of the day. I don't need to negotiate with some HR person to take time off. I can fly to Austin when I get invited to things without having to swap 18 different night shifts that I would have had to do previously. The amount of freedom and autonomy that's unlocked in my life alongside the energizing aspect of actually looking forward to Mondays has just been the best thing ever. <laughs> I've got to ask as a follow-up question. I think only everyone in this room will understand is, does your mom actually know what you do now? 
She kind of does. Um, back in the day when I left medicine, initially, she would, you know, every day we talk on FaceTime and she would say, hey, when are you going back to medicine? When are you going back? Now it's only once a month. So <laughs> over, over time, she is slowly getting over it. And like, okay, fair enough. He's doing all right. I mean, her worry, like like I think any any parent is like, you know, safety, security, stability. And the uh, the career of an internet entrepreneur and YouTuber is not a thing that inspires much like confidence. Like, yeah, this is a really stable career. So I can totally see where she's coming from. Sure. Um, I'm just hoping that over time we can build a business around it that makes it sufficiently sustainable, which is something I think about a lot. I mean, a, a serious follow-up to that question. How do you feel the landscape? Do you feel the landscape is changing in terms of just the overall understanding and acceptance of true careers in this field, in the creator economy? I think very slowly. I think people our age, people who work within the creator economy are seeing the value of it. Um, it's really hard to convince one of us, you know, some of our parents that that's, that's going to be true. Because even then, like even, even now, there are, there are not that many creators who are big today who were big five years ago or 10 years ago. I think especially because for a lot of the creator economy, most normal people think of entertainment creators rather than education creators. And entertainment creators, you know, they'll, they'll go big, they'll get into a relationship, they'll have a scandal, they'll do an apology, they'll go on, they'll, they'll end up in mainstream media because they're Logan Paul filming The Suicide Forest or because they're, you know, whoever has been accused of sexual assault. You know, this that is why. That's, that's the press that the creator economy gets for normal people in traditional media. Whereas the whole expert economy, you can be a teacher, you can make courses online. No one is telling stories about that in like traditional media. My mom would never have heard of Tim Ferriss or Brendan Burchard, sure. but she would have heard of James Charles or like Logan Paul or these people who have scandals about them. So I think there's a little bit of a PR problem, but I think like, and even, even then it's like, I think the, our, our educational side of the creator economy is like 10% of the creator economy. Most, mostly it's like music, gaming, lifestyle, beauty, fashion. A lot of, a lot less of it is education. So I think the educators in the, in the creator economy, I suspect have way more longevity. I hope for building a business around the product. Um, but increasingly we are seeing creators, you know, Mr. Beast and Logan Paul and KSI creating businesses around the thing, but that's less creator economy and more business. So I don't know. I think I, 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 I do feel it's tough for normal people to appreciate that this creator economy is actually a thing. So for anyone out there listening who doesn't know who you are, where's the best place to send them to learn more about you and your course offerings? Yeah, absolutely. So if you head over to uh, aliabdal.com, I'm sure you can put the link in the show notes and yep. stuff. That's my website. That'll have links to everything. Uh, the YouTube channel is where I share, share mostly videos about how to be more productive and build a life that you love. And of course, weirdly, is called the Part-Time YouTuber Academy. So that'll be linked over there. And if you fancy growing a YouTube channel and you need our help, then great. We are, we are here for you. I love it. Well, thank you, Ollie, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to both speak with us here on stage as well as join us for this podcast. Uh, I'm sure everyone is talking about this. Uh, I've been hearing the revelings because you just came off stage and everyone looked like it was a great time, but appreciate you taking time with us as well. Yeah, thanks, Jared. And thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. Awesome. Well, that's all we have for you this week on the Online Business Edge podcast. We'll look forward to seeing you next week.